0: Welcome to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, where we talk about issues facing our Big Island community. Island Conversations, Sunday mornings on KWXX at 6.30 and on B97-B93 at 7 a.m. Or listen anytime at kwxx.com. Island Conversations, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916. Now, here's your host and producer, Sherry Bracken.
1: Aloha. Good morning. Welcome to Island Conversations. On Sundays, we're on the radio on the Big Island of Hawaii on KWXX and B93B97. We're on KPUA 670 AM in Hilo the following Friday. You may always listen to Island Conversations wherever you get podcasts or at kwxx.com or b97hawaii.com. On July 31st, 2019, a few weeks after the Kia E, the protesters, the protectors, camped out on the Mauna Kea Access Road, the online news source Civil Beat ran an article entitled, Do Negotiations Offer a Way Forward on Mauna Kea? In that article by Stuart Yurton and Jim Simon, they interviewed experts in resolving conflicts, particularly those involving natural resources, sacred spaces, and large developments, about what strategies negotiators use to bring parties together in similar situations. One of those interviewed was Susan Podziba, who's been a public policy mediator for more than 25 years out of the Boston area. Ms. Podziba has designed and mediated cases involving the United States Departments of Commerce, Defense, Education, Housing, Interior, and more, and has worked with the United Nations on several thorny international disputes. She is director of the Sacred Lands Project of the MIT-Harvard Public Disputes Program and faculty for the Harvard Negotiation Institute. She's worked on disputes between Israelis and Palestinians, as well as on conflicts involving Alaska Natives and Native Americans. Sybil Beat referenced a paper which Ms. Podziba wrote in 2018 about mediating conflicts over sacred lands. Ms. Podziba is here in the state with an agenda that includes a talk at UH Richardson School of Law and meetings with Lieutenant Governor Josh Green, Mayor Harry Kim, representatives of the Mauna Kea Observatories, and the Kupuna Kiai among others. And Susan Podziba is here with us today. Good morning. Aloha, Ms. Podziba. Good morning. Aloha. Thank you so much for making time in your busy schedule, obviously, to come talk with us. You've obviously been involved with mediating conflicts over sacred lands for a very long time. What drew you to this particular area of mediation?
2: One of the issues that drew me to mediation in the first place was the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And as I've watched peace processes come and go for decades, I thought very much about why things kept going with no result. And in complex mediation, it's very typical to start with easier issues, try to resolve easier issues, and work your way up to the difficult issues, all the while gaining momentum towards dealing with those difficult issues. And I realized on the situation of Jerusalem there will never be enough momentum on the easier issues in order to settle Jerusalem. So I thought, here we have to turn negotiation theory on its head and start with the toughest issue, with the idea that if we could get some agreements around the tangible issues related to Jerusalem, which are so difficult because they're ensconced in intangible issues, then we may be able to solve the conflict Uh, And so I started thinking about what would it mean to mediate sacred land disputes? And sacred land is interesting to me because it's tangible and intangible at the same time. And most books that have been written about sacred land disputes suggest that there's no way to resolve them because you can't use the typical strategies of negotiation. You can't divide them. You can't compensate for them. You can't move them. So it becomes the almost the greatest complexity one can find for mediating public disputes. And you wanted a complex career, apparently. (laughs) Well, I've had a complex career, and I think I appreciate the complexity of it. I also appreciate the sense that fights over sacred land are fights over access to the divinity. And what does that mean? Because we wouldn't fight so hard over sacred lands if we didn't think there was something innately special. And that specialness is a potential promise for access to the divine.
1: Well, I heard a talk that you gave at the Queens College at the University of New York, and you did talk about sacred lands. And sacred lands, as you mentioned in that talk, some people consider the entire earth to be sacred. But sacred lands really are in the eye of the beholder.
2: Well, I'm not sure about that. Certainly, sacred lands require a sense of a worldview that enables an understanding of sacred lands. I like to divide the sense of sacred lands into... Those sacred spaces, which are somehow created because of human action, you can construct a house of worship, you can bury ancestors, you can have some major historical event that has religious significance that would cause a place to be considered sacred. But I'm fascinated by the concept of land being innately sacred, which is often related to creation stories that the sacredness of the place was sacred before humans even inhabited it. I'm fascinated by that.
1: You work around the world. You're based in Boston. Boston is pretty far geographically and also culturally from Hawaii. So what exactly has brought you to Hawaii? Why are you here?
2: I was invited by the law school to kick off a new conflict management institute they're creating. I think the article you referenced in Civil Beat caused them to invite me to come.
1: And then I understand that Kaikehele has invited you to meet with some of the leaders that I spoke about, yes?
2: Yes, yes. And uh, I'm not here for any, I don't have any particular goal, personal goal or professional goal. Um, I'm excited about the opportunity to meet with the different players and to gain a better understanding of the situation. It seems that Mauna Kea calls out for something that hasn't been done before. That people seem very tired of the processes that have been initiated so far. There hasn't been the results that many people are looking for. There's something of a standstill right now. And it does seem that some innovative, inclusive processes may be necessary or may be possible.
1: Well, you know this stalemate over Mount Ikea has been going on for close to eight months now, and I think everybody certainly on this island would like to see it resolved. Many people are feeling hopeless about the situation; it has been going on for a long time because it 's negatively affected families and businesses and friendships and our economy and I heard two of the Kia E, the protectors, in a talk at South Hilo Rotary a few months ago, and they said although the focus has been on 30-meter telescope the issues are so much broader than that, that it has to do with Department of Hawaiian Homelands, Office of Hawaiian Affairs, the support that Native Hawaiians are legally and morally entitled to. We're talking decades and decades of issues. Clearly, this is a complex situation, and I don't see from my vantage point that anything actually has been done to this point to help resolve this particular situation. So what are your thoughts about how complex issues like this actually get resolved. You don't have to reference this situation, because from what you've said, I don't imagine you know enough about it at this point, but just in general, it's a complex issue. So where do you start?
2: Thank you. I appreciate that you're not asking me to speak directly to this conflict. Oh, no, I'd I'd like you to
1: solve it right now. (laughs) Other than that, Um, no.
2: So I'm going to talk about process. How do people initiate inclusive processes in order to address complex problems that include historic grievances. The very first thing is to conduct an assessment. And an assessment is a series of in-depth interviews with all of the stakeholders. One of the difficulties in cases like this is the question of who represents the community, who represents a particular community. And it's always the case that there is no single representative of the community, which means that you have to find the different segments of the community and get representation for each of those segments. So from an assessment, you talk to many people until a mediator would have an understanding of the large context of the history of the power dynamics of the key parties of the key issues in dispute. The way a mediator knows that they have an understanding have a full enough picture is they start hearing the same thing over and over again. So once you hear repetitions, a mediator can have a sense that they have heard the story. What's so exciting about that part of a process is that in conducting these interviews, one hears the same story from so many different perspectives. From that assessment, right, sometimes one would write up a formal assessment report with input from all of the people who were interviewed. So if I were to do that, I would write a report that said, here's the history, here are the parties, here are the issues, etc. And I would cut and paste each section that related to a person who I spoke with and send it to them to say, did I get this right? From that, one would design a process, That includes who should be at the table, if there's to be a table. That can be a very challenging part of the process because if you don't get that right, you don't have a legitimate process. And so I'll give you an example from another case that I did. This was a case in Chelsea, Massachusetts. It's a city outside of Boston that was taken over by the state because its three of its past four mayors were incarcerated on corruption <laughs> charges, and it was um, virtually bankrupt. Can't so- imagine
1: why, with all those mayors going to prison.
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sorry,
1: I shouldn't laugh at a terrible situation for those people.
2: Well, they've healed since then, so we can we can look at that in the rearview mirror and and chuckle. Um, So what happened in that case is I conducted an assessment. I knew that in order for a new city charter to be written, it needed to be written in a way that the community learned self-governance to protect against future corruption. And from the assessment interviews, I wound up with a list of 80 nominees for, let's say, a 20-person charter preparation committee. And in order to figure out who of those 80 should be there, I identified with help three people who were considered moral in Chelsea, which got a lot of chuckles. (laughs) And by setting criteria, they were able to select from the 80, 20 people for the charter preparation team, so that there was representation from each segment of the community. But that wasn't the end of the story. What we did next is we published... The names, we published the list in the local paper and said, if you don't feel represented by anyone on this list, contact us and nominate additional people. And we got more names, and we went through the same process and added some people, and we went through three versions until we stopped getting calls. And then we felt comfortable that we had a legitimate charter preparation team. But also importantly is now we had the people who are going to be representative The process also included many mechanisms for participation by people outside of the negotiating team. So we had what I call outreach and consultation, because a lot of times people who are representing others can't make decisions on their own. They need to consult with their constituents. And so one designs, I design inclusive processes that create mechanisms for that kind of two-way feedback. One is, what does my constituent think of these issues? The other is what, is, what am I learning at the negotiations? What new innovations have come up that I need to bring back to them and get their feedback on before I can make any agreements? So that's the way you address these, is you very carefully identify representatives. You ensure that those representatives are considered legitimate by everyone who's involved, and you have many, many mechanisms for different kinds of outreach and consultation so that as many people who need to be involved are involved in order to assure an actionable and sustainable agreement as the result. And a brief interruption to remind
1: you, this is Island Conversations. I'm your host, Sherry Bracken. Today we're talking with Susan Podziba, who is an internationally known mediator. She actually came to the island at the invitation of UH School of Law, Richardson School of Law, to do a talk because they're planning on setting up a mediation center. Susan Podziba was mentioned in a story in Civil Beat, the online newspaper, because of her role in mediating complex situations. And then State Senator Kaika Helley mentioned her to me, so she came into the studio. I was really delighted because she was also meeting with Mayor Harry Kim, some of the protectors, Lieutenant Governor Josh Green, and more. Next week's Island Conversations is all about Hawaii Wildlife Center in Kapa'au, which rescues and rehabilitates injured native birds and the hoary bat. Before we get back to Island Conversations, a word from our sponsor.
0: At KTA, local and fresh means you get the very best Hawaii Island has to offer. The grass-fed meats you find at KTA are raised without added hormones or antibiotics. Our seafood department is stocked with sustainable choices caught in local waters by local fishermen. KTA carries the largest selection of Hawaii Island homegrown produce. Our Mountain Apple brand is all local, so you know it's fresh and delicious. Local and fresh always tastes best at KTA.
1: When you talk about the right people, that's clearly going to be an issue. It is an issue that we're facing. I mentioned that I went to hear two of the Kiai, the protectors, talk at South Hilo Rotary, and that was Kamaka Gunderson and Leilani Kaapuni when they were asked the question of if there were to be negotiations, who would likely be the people from the protector's side? And they literally looked at each other and said, we don't really know, there's so many different groups. This even came up, I interviewed Hawaii County Mayor Harry Kim on December 2nd. He had said at that time that he had agreement from three of the protectors that should there be high winds and storms, they would vacate upon his saying that it was time to go because he's very big into civil defense. Not more than 10 days later, we had some huge wins. And a couple of the people up there said, I didn't agree to that. And I'm not going. Even just that small example, it just highlighted that there is going to be an issue in figuring out who the right people are. And since these issues that we're facing on this island go back decades, maybe even a century, it's going to be a challenge. But it sounds like there is a process that a skilled mediator would be able to
2: use to help resolve those issues. About who? I'm sure it would be a huge challenge. It's not unusual when that kind of challenge exists for government officials to just say, there's no way we can do this. There's no way to identify who legitimately can represent the community. I would suggest that's a lost opportunity because there are ways of figuring out who. It just requires process innovation. The processes that I design are meant to reflect the unique characteristics of every situation. So I don't have a model that I go in with. I have an approach. When I start a case, and it's so complex, I think of myself as diving into a Jackson Pollock painting, that at first feels like it's chaos, and you're getting overwhelmed by the motion of it, but that you carefully tease out each question that must be answered before you can productively bring people together. One of those critical issues is representation.
1: If Any individual or any group has said, we refuse to negotiate. How do you deal with that? How do you actually get the parties to the
2: table? Again, that usually has specifics attached to it. I remember I once did a case about wastewater treatment. There were four wastewater treatment plants being built in a small area on a particular river, and the environmentalists said they weren't willing to come to the table. So I told them that was okay. But I continued to talk to the other parties. I never actually brought people together. I just talked to parties individually. And in that instance, I knew that they didn't want to come to the table. And so I don't pressure people to do something they don't want to do. But I also knew they had very great respect for one of the town managers. And so in some ways, I could send messages to the environmentalists through that town manager And they trusted him so much that when he said, I think this is a good way to resolve this, they were willing to come along with that. That's an unusual situation. Again, I designed to the unique characteristics, and that worked in that situation. What a
1: challenge. Yeah, You have had some complex mediations, complex negotiations. If one were to attempt to mediate our situation here, if the parties could be identified using a process, as you've described, or some similar process,
2: what would happen after that? What would the next steps be, ideally? You conduct an assessment, you design a process, and then you implement that process. So that would probably have some element of mediated negotiations It would have outreach and consultation that would be integrated into those negotiations, and if successful, there would be an actionable agreement. I should say one of the other pieces that's important and critical to an assessment is an identification of the scope of issues to be negotiated. Then what happens at the first meeting, you bring people together, you develop ground rules for how the negotiations are going to be run, essentially so that everybody knows why they're there. There's agreement on process expectations. And what would happen if, let's say, somebody left? How would you add a party? What if we find there's a missing party? What are the responsibilities of the representatives, of the mediator? How are you going to work with the media? For example, and then you would start to go through each of the issues. The way it works is really to use an iterative process. So I never tried to solve an issue and then move to the next issue and then move to the next issue because all the issues are linked. You start with the issues, there's some sense of how do you sequence the issues so that maybe you start with some of the easier issues, some of the less difficult issues. Certainly, I might choose to sequence a very difficult issue when people aren't fully caffeinated and likely to get very excited over things. But there's a way of sequencing issues and talking about an issue until it becomes repetitive and then tabling that and moving to another issue. And then it's kind of like, if it's going well, it's like weaving a basket. You just kind of weave the agreement slowly, slowly until it emerges. And all the time you're writing down where the agreements in concept are, and you're revising those in order to get to something that is um, precise. Negotiations
1: such as you're talking about sound like they take a very long time.
2: Typically, I've done very intense negotiations over a period of three months to develop um, education uh, regulations, for example, testing requirements for the federal government or student loan regulations. I've done those in three months. Um, I've done worker safety standards um, for construction cranes, took 12 months. The Chelsea charter process took nine months. So that's, I think that's a fair range.
1: Oh, I'm sure that people on this island, I mean, people are already very tired, you know, just worn out by what's going on. And I think people do need to understand that whatever resolution comes won't be overnight. It won't be fast there are a lot of complex issues, and they have spread, as I mentioned, well beyond this island. You're meeting with a number of different people, but I noticed that Governor Ige, who is ultimately responsible for this, is not on your list of meetings, and I'm curious why.
2: I really don't know.
1: Okay, just curious about that. Do you think that A person such as yourself, and now I don't know what your end goal is. I don't know. I'm guessing this is of interest to you, but I don't know if your end goal really is that you might actually be involved in such a mediation. But what are the issues involved in having somebody come to a culturally rich situation and culturally diverse situation and having a person who is from far away, not from this state, not
2: from this culture, can that work? I think that's a good question. I think you need a team. I don't think it's one individual that parachutes in and settles a very complex, decades long conflict. I think it's really about a team approach. You need someone with stature, you need someone who understands the cultural issues at play, you need someone who understands the mediation process. And most importantly, you need a mediation team that is accepted by the parties. That would be really important, wouldn't it? Yeah, so I'll give you an example. I'm doing an environmental justice civil rights case in Albuquerque. And there's also historical grievance there. There are worldview differences, not at the level of sacred land disputes, but at the level of air quality and public health impacts. They went through a process of identifying a short list of mediators. There were, I believe, seventeen people who were on the selection team and they interviewed five mediators and they made a choice. And you know, I'm thankfully they, they selected me. But so I so they had a process for selecting the the person who was going to help them. And I think that would be as critical in this situation. As any other, so so the question would be, how do you identify who's going to be a selection team to select a mediator? <laughs> Sounds like you'd have to go back to your
1: process for selecting the people to be involved.
2: Almost right. So so it may be that's a conundrum, um, but it might be if there were, if if someone could be identified who would be trusted enough to conduct an assessment, or a team that could conduct an assessment that would help identify the parties and maybe also a selection team for the mediator. It turns out that Hawaii has a very mature mediation uh, community. There are people like Peter Adler. I know he's done a fair amount of work on these issues in the past. There's also the Mediation Center of the Pacific. It's a 40-year-old organization just about to move into a new building that they've purchased. They've been covering disputes across the spectrum of of conflict and I'm sure that there are people on their mediation roster that are familiar with cultural contexts and I think could be tapped to be very helpful in a process like this.
1: What else should we know about the kind of process that would be important to understand if we want to have this conflict over Mount Aca come to a resolution that satisfies people On all sides, and I say all sides, because I think there are many sides.
2: I think we're in a period of polarization across the country. And what we're losing is a sense of respect for difference and a sense of humility. And just to say a little bit more about each of those. So one of my foundational books is Plato's Republic. And in there, Socrates is considered the wisest man of all Athens because he knows what he doesn't know. And so I think many of us have to take a step back and say, what is it that I don't know about the other's worldview, and be open and curious about learning of different worldviews, and being able to negotiate with holding multiple stories in one's mind at the same time. The title of my book is called Civic Fusion Mediating Polarized Public Disputes. And what civic fusion is, it's a phrase that I coined. It's when people with deep value differences come together and bond to solve a shared public problem. And they do so without giving up any of their values. So many people worry about consensus as we all have to find common ground, we're going to choose the lowest hanging fruit. Consensus actually enables people to express their differences and then to develop solutions that actually fit like a hand in a glove because those differences are expressed and people can innovate ideas to satisfy all of those interests, which nobody knows without talking with the other. So I really encourage the potential for a process that enables people to learn from each other and thereby to integrate the wisdom of the community into a satisfying whole. Very
1: nice. You know, the thing about humility, that clearly is something that seems to be lacking, perhaps at the national level, just in general. You mentioned there's so much conflict in the country these days, and it's really hard. Kind of nice being here in Hawaii where we're geographically a little
2: further from some of those conflicts nationally. It saddens me. It really does sadden me. I've been sitting in the middle of conflict professionally for about 30 years. And this level of polarization is not what I expect from Americans. I know better than that. This is my 49th state. I've been all over the country. I've met really good people all over the country. And what I find is that proximity matters, When you bring people with different worldviews and different thoughts together, they will connect. We are, as humans, we are social animals, and we have so many reasons to connect with each other. It's really when we stay in our own bubbles that polarization survives, because we don't see the other, we don't interact with the other. Bringing people together is really, I think, the first step towards addressing polarized conflict.
1: Is there anything else you'd like to add before we
2: say aloha, Susan Podziba? I'd say thanks for having me in the studio. It's been a pleasure to meet with you. And you know my prayers are with the Hawaiian people.
1: Thank you. I think we need them right now. Susan Podziba, thank you so much for being with us. Aloha. Aloha. And a really big thank you to our listeners for being with us. Susan Podziba is an internationally known mediator. You may find out more about her at podziba.com, P-O-D-Z-I-B-A dot com. The podcast of this and other previous Island Conversations, as well as bonus Island Conversations that have not been aired on the radio, they're always online wherever you get podcasts. Until the next Island Conversations, please, let's all live and drive with Aloha. ahuiho.
0: Thank you for listening to Highland Conversations with Sherry Bracken, available anytime at kwxx.com. We welcome your feedback and suggestions at info at kwxx.com. Join us next week for another Highland Conversations with Sherry Bracken, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916.